I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. How much verbal exchange did you have with the girls down there in the basement? At first, I tried to make it nice, right? Yeah, how, how did you do that, Gary? I was holding parties there for one thing. I, mean, I had a Christmas party and a New Year's party. Eight, they go down in the hole in the morning. Board goes over the top of the hole with the sandbags, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they stay down there till roughly about eight at night. Got a radio down here, right? Oh, yeah. Play, playing, yeah. What, yeah. playing real loud? Yes. Why is that? To, to, to drown out any noise? Right. Because you're, yeah. you're leaving the house sometimes. Yes. That was a conscious act on my part, and that was essentially the reason. To drown out that noise, for sure. Well, they might like a little entertainment, too. Yeah. You were as electrocuted a as punishment. Yeah. And you did that systematically for some time. No, only several days. Nothing was working. I was trying to find something that worked that would make them shut up to stop. So oh, you aggressive kind of infliction of pain on these women. I was trying to find something that would make them behave. But it was painful to them. I hope so. That's what I was trying to achieve, you know, to make them behave. Hello and welcome to I Could Murder a Podcast, Series 8, Episode 11. The sun is shining, the weather is sweet, and Ben, how are you doing with those stinky, stinky feet? <laughs> I thought you were going to say my, my dancing feet, because I've got a groove on. Maybe they're, you've been dancing too hard, and, they, and now they stink. Because I've been dancing in cowpat. Well, I haven't. Just meant the sweat. But that could explain the smell. Yeah, no, not sweat. I don't, I've got nice sweat. Od- the odorless man, the brandless man, and the odorless man, my two sort of... High school nickname. <laughs> your nickname at your barbecue was B.O. B.O. Ben. No, it wasn't B.O. Ben. Big old, big old Ben, because there was a, a small, little Ben, wasn't there? There was a little Ben, a younger Ben. Um, but I don't know if it was B.O. Ben. I didn't hear too much of that. <laughs> uh, some of it behind your back, I was like, guys, pipe it down. That sounds like um, you. Yeah, I was sticking up for you. Thanks. The big B.O. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> doing really well, doing really well. Um, it's great to be back with more of a sort of classic true crime tale uh, this week compared to some of the more niche cases that we've covered so far this series but doing really well um sweaty or not sweaty i'm all ready uh for this case how are you doing producer dan very good welcome back to boston sound uh yeah another hot one i've got a new mic so i might sound a little bit different a little bit shinier a bit more sparkly mm. looks very cool looks a bit vintage doesn't it looks like um a phallic spaceship one of the supremes would have it yeah 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 
And if you play your cards right, I might buy you a new mic. But, you know, <gasps> see how this episode goes, shall we? Damn. Buy it with our own money. Damn. Thank you, sir. <laughs> uh, but yes, we are back once again. As Ben said, it's more of a your classic true crime case this week. And we hope you found last week's case enlightening, the Central Park Five. But um, we are back again with a classic. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in, in typical historical fashion, this would uh, usually be episode 11, our penultimate episode of the series. But, uh, you know, Tom came out with this brainwave we're going to do 18 this series so we've still Fucking got another hell! seven big big cases to come just just giving something back you know guys yeah, absolutely they deserve it well it doesn't sound like you think they deserve it but <laughs> i think they do yeah absolutely and on that we have uh after this week's episode seven big big cases still to come including our audience vote which we cannot wait to see what you pick so if you aren't already please do give us a follow over on instagram twitter uh facebook at could murder a pod we'll probably do the audience vote on instagram give us a follow uh, and that will be coming up very very soon um so yeah very intriguing but today we arrive at the case of gary heidnick um, I did do a little bit of a sort of cryptic clue towards the end of uh, uh, the Central Park 5 episode. Hide half of your favourite bag of crisps. Uh, Nick. Hide Nick. Nick Knacks. Nice and spicy. Oh, right. Probably would be better if you didn't, ha- if you didn't have hide in the beginning of it. Cause it's, um, hide for hide Nick. No, I got that. But um, usually the riddle doesn't have one of the words. In. But yeah, um, yeah, it kind of yeah. works. So hide I'd half be- the bag that has knack on it. Yeah. I'm with you. With you. Um... <laughs> But um, it's not like if Dan said his, his riddle the other day, and it's like, guy falls asleep in a lighthouse, why does the uh, sailors die? It's like, well, that's probably because he's in the lighthouse. But yeah, anyway, this <laughs> week's case goes by many a name. Uh, the case of Gary Heidnick, the real life Buffalo Bill. Yeah, when I was Googling some research for this case, lots of uh, pictures of the old Buffalo Bill from Science of the Lambs. The House of Horrors Killer, the Crimes of Brother Bishop, um, which sounds like Harold Bishop's brother going on a mad one, the Murders of Monster Preacher. And the baby sour murders. Sour, sorry, sour. No, but there's this like round tree baby sours you can get. Right. And I've murdered a pack of them, you know what I mean? <laughs> the baby sour murders. Very good. You would love one of those packets. No, no, you both, you boys love a little sweetie. I've just had a coffee, otherwise, yeah, I might take you up on that, friend. But anyway, we're back with a classic true crime case. Let's go over classic setting of the scene. Producer Dan, let us know what today's all about. Gary Heidnick. A monster, a fiend, a killer, a preacher, a predator. A name that once sent shivers down the spine of a nation. Heidnick was a man enshrouded in darkness and hostility. His life took a sinister turn as he evolved into one of the most infamous criminals in history. Operating from his self-devised Philadelphia basement throughout the 1980s, Heidnick's crimes were a harrowing blend of sadism, depravity and control. Kidnappings, torture and unspeakable horrors became his trademarks as he held captive a nightmarish collection of women in his own makeshift dungeon with a view to seed them to his growing family. His chilling story has become renowned as the one true House of Horrors case, inspiring one of Hollywood's most infamous serial killers with his twisted, unforgivable actions. As RJ Parker, author of The Basement, the true story of serial killer Gary Heidnick said, Oftentimes, serial killers go on their spree due to one reason or another. It might be a triggering event in their life, or something that went very wrong at some point in time. There's little doubt that hatred begins to boil up in their minds from a very young age. It was the same with Heidnick. During his early years, he'd been tortured mentally and physically by his father. He had been cast as a social recluse back in school. 
Gary used to pacify himself by thinking that he was a better person than those who had wronged him. His sexual urges were increasing by the day, and so was his urge for revenge. So yeah, as, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, more of a classic true crime case, in, to, in uh, certainly in comparison to some of the uh, slightly more niche ones we've covered recently on this series. Um, I have said before, I'm more of a visual content consumer uh, rather than a podcast listener, but a couple of years ago, I listened to a podcast about Gary Heidnick on YouTube. I thought it was a documentary, so I clicked it and it was a podcast, uh, planning to fall asleep to it, but it, it kept me up for hours uh, when I started hearing of some of his crimes, it was... It's like your blue pill, isn't it, listening to true crime? It is, yeah. You've got to have it around 11pm to midnight. If you start a nice true crime documentary then, you're going to probably have nightmares of some form. Um, but yeah, kept me up for a while. And for me, it's kind of, I don't know, as we go on, it, it surprises me some of the elements to this case. For me, it has strands, and I feel it's kind of a Joseph Fritzl, Ariel Castro kind of hybrid meets David Koresh. That's my sort of where I'm at at the moment. All three of which obviously we've covered before. But it's, yeah, it's just a really odd, really horrible, really dark, dark case. And uh, yeah, as we go into our timeline, it will get particularly gruesome, particularly horrific, which we're going to go into great detail on today. So let's jump into it. Before we jump into it, who wants a little riddle? Oh, hell. Jimmy Riddle. Dan's riddle, sly and mischievous grim. Twist and turn, a mind game to win. Puzzles are plenty, a chuckle or two. A laugh and thought, we find our clue. Riddles! Yes, that jingle got a lot of rave reviews, Dan, so um, loving yeah, the jingle did. work there, mate. Thank you. Um, I'm going to bring us back to an easier form of riddle um, and a little bit more in line with um, what we're known for. In line with crime. So if you know the answer, shut the fuck up and wait till the end. What has to be broken before you can use it? I'll leave that with you. Anyway, the early life. Gary Michael Heidnick was born on the 22nd of November 1943 in Eastlake, Ohio. Gary was the oldest of two boys born to Michael and Ellen Heidnick, having a younger brother called Terry. The Heidnicks were very much a working class family based in the northern suburb of Cleveland, and they were considered one of the more quiet and reserved families in the neighbourhood. <laughs> Love the idea of people going, that family's a bit quiet and reserved. Um, despite this, from the earliest memories, Gary had a very strange relationship with both his parents in slightly different ways, and there are some classic serial killer hallmarks scattered throughout the early childhood and formative years, which we'll get into now. Yeah. You don't, yeah, you don't often. That's a good point. I'd love some quiet and reserved neighbours. Are you the quiet and reserved neighbour? Yes, yeah. I'm that sort of, ooh, he's a bit quiet and reserved. Mm. Yeah, he, he wears a lot of long coats and goes out weird hours. <laughs> that kind of guy. Michael and Ellen would regularly scream at one another in front of their two young boys, and sometimes their arguments became physical. Gary's father, Michael, who worked as a machinist, would regularly be away from the family home for long periods of time as a result of his work, and when he did return, he would often allegedly binge drink before going to bed, which, hmm, I mean, I'd take a bit of true crime before bed, but I might have a beer or two as well. Yeah, you regularly drink now during the no, day. Not regularly. You don't say regularly. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with the boss here. <laughs> Guilty. <laughs> so yeah, this this binge drinking before bed. It did not please his wife Ellen, who was busy trying to raise her two boys whilst also working as a beautician. And uh, yeah, obviously, when when he was at home, many arguments would ensue. Gary's father, as well as abusing alcohol, was allegedly also incredibly abusive to young Gary and Terry. 
And later in life, Terry would recall in an interview that his father was an incredibly strict disciplinarian who would go as far as to, and yeah, this is a new one, um, paint a bullseye on the back of the boys' shorts before sending them to school, uh, kind of with the hopes that someone will see that straight away and write... I'm going to kick that. Uh, yeah, basically hoping that their classmates would punch and kick the boys in their behinds. It's a bit slapstick. And also, if he is binge drinking before bed and then waking up really early to paint red targets on his kids' shorts, mm. get a life. Yeah, that is a that is a very odd to try and encourage other children to bully your kids. How would you not see that as well? Because I, I was like, did he paint it when they had them on or did he paint it before they put them on? Because would you not notice a big red target on your bum Tom mm. did you not notice it may not come as a surprise that Gary's parents divorced just two and a half years after he was born both parents blame one another for the breakup with Ellen citing Michael's alcoholism and Michael accusing Ellen of being unfaithful as a result Ellen took custody of the boys for the following four years during this time Michael would meet various other women and introduce them to his boys leading to a lot of confusion on their part eventually Michael decided to keep his distance and the boys would not see their father for two years leading to both of them to develop a sense of abandonment and Gary in particular to begin to harbour resentment towards his father during the four years that Ellen had sole custody of the children she began to struggle a great deal both in terms of finances as well as the toll it took on her mental and physical health when Gary turned six, he and his brother were placed back into the care of his father, Michael, who had since remarried to a lady named Dorothea, which is apparently a very common name, according to Ben. Gary was not very happy about this arrangement at all, and now he started to resent his mother, as well as his father, and a genuine feeling of abandonment from both parents had fully developed. Dorothea had absolutely no interest in the two Heidnik boys, who would now regularly go without meals. Gary also alleged that Dorothea would physically abuse him and his brother whilst his father was at work, causing the pair to run away from home in an attempt to get to California. The boys were found and returned home to their family. So as a result of this, Gary believed that each of his parents, as well as Dorothea, were distant and neglectful of him and his brother, causing a great deal of emotional distress for the pair. And a note that we should make here, obviously we've talked about the different uh, struggles that Ellen went through as a result of the divorce. It was a very uh, highly conflictual divorce, uh, frictional divorce as well. It has been alleged that Ellen gave up the boys due to turning to alcoholism and her elevated stress levels as well as struggles to make ends meet did allegedly make her turn to alcohol the very same way that her ex-husband once had. When he moved back in with his father, Ellen did not inform Michael that young Gary had been wetting the bed for the past couple of years. Michael decided to deal with the situation in a far less soft manner than that of his mother, who would simply tell Gary off before reassuring him. Whereas Michael, obviously we've already kind of talked about the painting the target on the back of the boys, he decided to go in a slightly different, uh, down a slightly different avenue here to punish Gary. So what he would do is verbally berate Gary in front of the entire family before hanging his urine-stained bedsheets out from his bedroom window for all of the neighbourhood to see. It is also alleged that on top of the everyday emotional and physical abuse that Gary would suffer at the hands of his father, his father would also hang a young Gary outside the window by his ankles above his soiled bedsheets and proclaimed, this is the thing responsible to any passers-by. So yeah, that's, that's, that's drastic. Unsurprisingly, many other neighbourhood children and school friends would make fun of Gary as a result of this. So yeah, I would imagine that news travelled fast if someone's observed a father holding his son by the ankles. I would have thought from that though... You'd be like, he's denying it too much. He must have done it himself. He's blaming on, blaming on his kid. <laughs> oh, this this sheet covered in piss and shit. It was him. Oh yeah, mate. All right. 
Fucking liar. Yeah, that's um, it's a theory. Yeah, so targets on the back of the shorts and hung upside down just above your pissy bed sheets. It's not very nice whatsoever. At school, despite his exceptionally high intelligence, Gary found the social element extremely daunting. He had very few friends, with the exception of his younger brother, and many children from his neighbourhood had already informed other children at the school of his dirty bedsheets hanging from his window. This further isolated him from society and continued to fuel resentment for others. Gary felt that nobody wanted to be friends with him, and that even his own family didn't want to be near him. On the rare occasions that Gary received friendly interactions from other pupils at school, he would often interact poorly. He was known as a child who refused to make eye contact with others, but would often avoid engaging in lengthy conversations altogether. When a young girl from his class turned to Gary and asked him, Did you get the homework done, Gary? He responded by screaming at her and telling her she was, quote, not worthy enough to talk to him. Which is quite arrogant, to be fair. Uh, despite all of his challenges, Gary managed to get good grades and seemed to be a well-engaged student. When he was later tested as a teenager, he was said to have an IQ of around 148, with many of the teachers noting that, whilst the young boy was socially awkward and continued to avoid eye contact by any means necessary, he was an incredibly diligent student known for his excellent work. And I just thought, IQs, oh, they are bloody interesting. Ben Carter's Interesting Facts. Interesting Facts. Welcome back. Welcome back. Um, hey, if you're listening to this episode on the day of release, have a great September 4th. Uh, and if you're not, hey, have a great calendar day. Lovely listener. Just wanted to send some nice vibes your way. This week is a super duper short one here. And I've actually annoyed myself because uh, I sent Tom an idea for TTs, um, which is probably better than BC's IFs this week. So that's. I'm not going to use it. Well, we'll see. Uh, but yes, super duper short one. IQs, intelligence quotients. Uh, there you go. Uh, so as we mentioned, Gary Heidnick is alleged to have had an IQ of a staggering 148. But he isn't the smartest multiple murderer or serial killer on the block, at least on paper. Now, according to the Serial Killer Information Center, which is a thing, whilst the average person has an IQ typically between 85 and 115, the average serial killer would sit somewhere at around 94.5. Ted Bundy had a degree in psychology and an IQ of 136. Jeffrey Dahmer had obviously, he liked his goldfish and like playing with animal bones and stuff like that. And he had an IQ of 145. Tom's favorite Ted Kaczynski obviously had a PhD and an IQ of 167. But the highest IQ currently on record for serial killers is Rodney Alcala the dating game serial killer with a shocking IQ, shocking, I suppose, in a good way, of 170. Jesus. So yeah, Alcala was known for being the winning contestant on the 1978 episode of The Dating Game. There's lots of kind of very viral footage of that. And uh, yeah, definitely an episode we'll likely cover on the podcast in the future. Um, he obviously made that appearance whilst simultaneously killing women in California. And although after Alcala's trial, investigators found more than a thousand photos that he took of his crimes and estimated that based on this, he had at least 50 victims because of how meticulous he was in his crimes. He was only found guilty of killing five people. So spoiler if we do cover that case in the future. But yeah, apparently he was very, very diligent and able to get off on various technicalities. Um, so yeah, an interesting one. But just for some more recent context, Elon Musk, 155. 
Mark Zuckerberg, 152. <laughs> Boxing gloves are on between those two. Stephen Hawking, 160. Albert Einstein, 165. Natalie Portman, 140. And Lady Gaga, allegedly, 166. Wow. Oppenheimer, what do you get? Great question, Tom. Oppenheimer, 130. Ooh. Damn fuck. Surprises <laughs> me. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that surprises me. Shit. That was good, Ben. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, no problem. Cheers. All right. <laughs> Back to the case. Back to the episode. Ben Carter's interesting facts. Interesting facts. When Gary was just six years old, according to his younger brother Terry, the pair were playing in the local woods when a significant life event occurred for the pair. Gary had climbed several metres up a tree when a branch that we were standing on suddenly gave way, causing him to plummet headfirst to the ground a good distance beneath them. The impact knocked him unconscious immediately, and Terry rushed home to get help from his parents. Gary was then rushed to hospital, where he was required to have over a dozen stitches. His cranium was misshapen to a noticeable extent as a result of the accident, and the impact on his brain was likely serious, and believed to have later caused behavioural aberration, meaning that his personality and moods would change drastically from this point onwards. Um, like we mentioned earlier on in the case, this has lots of clear hallmarks to a lot of cases we covered before. The shaman of bedwetting, Seems to be a big one. I think three or four cases we've done before. That leads to um, some reason leads to serial killers. And Ben, ben went into an older age. Again, that's also a bit of a link. But the um, the head injury, I think, is obviously the most no- notable one. If a, if a child or people developing suffer a head injury, uh, affecting how the brain develops. And uh, yeah, that's a big one here. So yeah, this, this incident here is a big fork in the road for Gary. So just as we thought things couldn't get any worse for Gary, when he returned to school after the accident... The shape of his skull was so noticeably different that the children in the school literally hey Arnold him by the nick- nickname and then football head. So it's American football, so kind of more like rugby ball-y to people who don't know who hey Arnold is. Uh, Gary despised this name and the uh, abuse that he suffered as a result of his injury and began to grow his hair longer to try and cover up some of his appearance. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, a quick recap here. As Tom mentioned, there's a lot going on. Classic hallmarks. Persistent bedwetting past the age of five. Tick. Serious brain slash head injury as a child. Tick. Physically abused as an infant. Tick. Given up periodically by both parents. Tick. And severely bullied at school. Tick. So, obviously, to this point, as far as we are aware, we've not encountered any cruelty to animals or fondness for fire starting, leaving him too shy of the McDonald triad. But uh, let's see what happens next. So not long after this uh, accident occurred of him falling out the tree, Gary's brother Terry suggested that his brother's personality changed dramatically after his fall. He seemed to develop a more aggressive nature and would act out against his younger brother as well as smaller children in the neighbourhood. During his early years, Gary's mother would take him to the park to feed the ducks and he was known to affectionately play with cats and dogs local to his family home. But... After the accident, Gary would regularly throw rocks at the ducks and regularly try to kick and punch people's pets on his street. It has also been alleged that he once tied up a cat and hung it from a tree, with neighbours having no idea that it was Gary that was the perpetrator. So he's there obviously two out of the three uh, of the McDonald triad, but no signs of fires. But yeah... Not a very nice childhood so far. Eight years go by and not much else is known about Gary during this time period. He continued to study hard at school, continued to endure the wrath of the bullies and continued to have an extremely unhappy home life. 
At the age of 14, and some people have speculated that this was at the encouragement of his father, and others suggest that it was likely due to the bullying getting so severe, Gary made the decision to drop out of school before completing the ninth grade in order to enrol in the Staunton Military Academy, which was over in Staunton, Virginia, a good seven hours away from the family home. So Gary now had plans to later join the military, though his mind seemed to change on this matter several times. Gary would drop out of Staunton Military Academy after just two years of attendance, quitting just a handful of months before graduation. This could be because of a change of heart or forecasted poor grades. He would return to Eastlake, Ohio, where he joined a public high school for just over a year, but once again dropping out shortly before graduation. At the age of 17, Gary decided to leave education altogether and enlist in the United States Army. Like many of his pursuits thus far in life, Gary once again found difficulty in seeing things through. He would serve in the army for just 13 months before deciding that it wasn't for him, though it is also believed that he experienced medical conditions that prompted him to leave. When he first started his basic training, his drill sergeants and superiors graded Gary as excellent, and this encouragement, combined with the fact that he knew he had above average intelligence, may have prompted Gary to believe that he could start at more senior level than expected. Gary first applied to be a member of the military police, then he applied to be a pilot, then he applied to be a heavy weapons specialist. So just really heavy guns. Um, all of these applications were rejected, perhaps unsurprisingly, almost immediately. Which does make sense because he was a 17-year-old without any military experience and had only recently completed his basic training. Though he was extremely deflated by these rejections and the idea of starting out at what he considered an inferior position. Gary saw a poster that detailed the requirement for field medics down in San Antonio, Texas, with full training included. Gary's application was accepted and he was very quick to relocate. Despite all of the excitement he felt about becoming a medic, and this was demonstrated when Gary completed his medical training two months ahead of schedule, Gary did not love the reality of the role, finding it barely stimulating and not very lively in his opinion. The following year, in 1961, an 18-year-old Gary was transferred to join the 46th Army Surgical Hospital in Landstuhl, uh, which is in West Germany. Dan, did I say that right? You nailed it, boy. And what do you reckon, how do you reckon the Germans greeted him? Did they say, hey, ich habe keine Ahnung. Oh. For like that, yeah. No, I thought they'd be a bit more sort of affectionate and maybe say, hi, Fußballkopft, which is, I think, uh, hello, football head in German, Dan, is it? Yeah, close, close. Close, we'll call it that, we'll call it that. But that, that, that was bullying and mean, so don't do that. So anyway, he's arrived at West Germany where he would go on to earn his GED, his general education development in the first few months. And he would now remain in Germany for the following year, where he would fully immerse himself in the new role and establish himself as a hardworking and popular member of his infantry. However, in August of 1962, Gary began to experience a series of unusual symptoms, proving that you never truly know what's around the corner. After a year in Germany, Gary started to complain of extended bouts of blurred vision, nausea, extreme headaches, as well as dizziness, for which he was eventually hospitalised. Gary alleged to other members of his battalion that he had been given an experimental LSD drug, which had been the true cause of the condition, but nobody believed him. Gary was referred by his doctor to a hospital neurologist, who had no record other than Gary's word of his childhood accident, eventually diagnosed Gary with severe gastroenteritis, which... As this week's episode doesn't have a huge amount of quotes for our lovely producer Dan DeVoice, uh, we're going to throw to him to explain this nasty condition in much greater detail. So, <laughs> over to you, Danny Boy. Gastroenteritis, also known as infectious diarrhoea, is a short-term illness triggered by the infection and inflammation of the digestive system. Highly common in children, symptoms can include abdominal cramps, diarrhoea, dizziness and vomiting. 
Some of the causes of gastroenteritis include viruses, bacterial toxins, parasites, particular chemicals and some antibiotic drugs. In most cases, viral gastroenteritis is not harmful. However, this condition can be dangerous if it leads to dehydration. <laughs> Anyone with signs or symptoms of dehydration should see a doctor right away. Let's have a drink, mate. A person with severe dehydration may need hospital treatment. Look after yourselves, everybody. Take care and stay safe. I find that a bit patronising, but thanks, Danny. I appreciate that. So as well as the diagnosis of severe gastroenteritis, the neurologist also noticed that Gary displayed certain signs and symptoms of someone experiencing a mental illness, including vivid hallucinations and paranoia. They noted that he likely had schizoid personality disorder. For this, they prescribed Gary with several doses of trifluoperazine, and just two months later he was given a full disability pension and transferred back to America, where he began working and living for a short period at a military hospital in Philadelphia. It is not known if Gary took the recommended medication or not, but once he had settled back in America and received treatment from a specialist, he was officially diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder and was subsequently honorably discharged from the military. And once again, we're going to bring in our human encyclopedia, or Humlopedio, nope. to take a look at this one. So, uh, so back to you, Dan. Schizoid personality disorder, often abbreviated to SCPD, is a mental health condition marked by a consistent pattern of detachment from and a general disinterest in social relationships. Hear, hear. I can relate. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I know. People with schizoid personality disorder also have a limited range of emotions when interacting with others and prefer solitary activities. People with schizoid personality disorder rarely react, for example, by smiling or nodding or show emotion in social situations. They have difficulty expressing anger, even when they are provoked. They do not react appropriately to important life events and may seem passive in response to changes in circumstances. Personality disorders are chronic, long-term dysfunctional behaviour patterns that are inflexible, prevalent and lead to social issues and distress. People with this condition may seem aloof, disengaged and distant, meaning that they often don't realise that their behaviour is unusual or problematic. So there you have it. Trifluoperazine, also known as Stelazine, the drug that was provided to Gary, is an inexpensive, accessible, high-potency antipsychotic drug which was widely used to treat schizophrenia or related psychosis. <laughs> Back to you, boys. Thanks very much, Dan. Not long after he was discharged from the army, Gary became a licensed nurse and started working placements at a hospital in Philadelphia, whilst he also began studying nursing at the University of Pennsylvania. But, like almost every endeavour so far in his life, this again would be short-lived. He was frustrated by seeing his military career fail, and he was adamant that he would still try to make something of himself in order to throw in his parents' faces. 
Gary dropped out for unknown reasons after just under 15 weeks of his studies. So according to Google's definition of a semester, he didn't even complete his uh, his first semester. After dropping out and adamant that he would never ever return to the family home, Gary used his last remaining bit of income to move to Chester County, where he started working at a Veterans Administration Hospital in Coatesville. Unfortunately for Gary, he was fired after little over a year due to poor attendance and several complaints having been made that he was repeatedly being rude to the older male patients and perhaps he was seeing them in a similar light to how he saw his own father. Now without a job, without his family, without any friends and without a partner of his own, Gary felt as though the world was against him. For the remainder of the 1960s, he would turn to alcoholism, much like it is alleged both his parents had done before him, and he would also turn, quite surprisingly, to religion. I think this is also another tick we'd say in the old tick box list for the uh, things that people who tend to go a bit either culty or serial killery. Religion's usually somewhere baked in, mm. I yeah. would say. He's thrown that cherry on top. Yeah, he has. He's, he's, iced, he's iced that cake. He's iced that cake. Between 1966 and 1971, Gary was in and out of a number of different psychiatric hospitals around the East Coast and southern parts of America, and had now also developed selective mutism. Um, Each time he received the same diagnosis of schizoid personality disorder, SPD, and was prescribed with antipsychotics before being discharged. Many speculate that perhaps he was attending these different hospitals in order to keep a roof over his head. However, in this five-year time period, Gary very publicly attempted to end his own life on more than 13 separate occasions across five different different states. So this included alcohol, uh, medical overdoses, ingesting rat poison, uh, and I'll throw back to the Marianne Cotton episode, the arsenic in there, uh, trying to cause gangrene in his toes, but basically he, he did that by tying little bits of string around his toes and t- tying it tight because he wanted to spread mm. uh, gangrene from the body, and also driving his motorbike into an oncoming truck. So very elaborate ways to try and end his life there. Nothing immediate. I just feel like there's easier ways he could have gone about it. Yeah. Obviously, not you know. I'm just saying that if you're picking a way to go, a slow debilitating disorder. It's not maybe not the one you pick, but um, yeah, he managed to kind of get get by. Yeah, even with uh, driving his motorbike into oncoming traffic, it, it's quite the quite the one. Gangrene in the toes looks horrible. Yeah. I don't I don't know. I wasn't expecting it to look nice, but it's yeah, it's horrible. There's also a doctor gangrene. Shout out to our friend Yarn who had gout in his big toe. Not quite the same as gangrene. Didn't go the whole way, but. Uh, Despite all of these obstacles, in 1967, Gary received a large payout as part of his compensation from the military, though some have also speculated, and I I don't, this doesn't add up with the rest of his story, but in some articles it's stated that he made a large amount of money on the stock market. Mm. I I know he had a fairly decent IQ, but no interest in stocks to this point, but... I mean, I, I got some some shares in Weatherspoons during lockdown and then yeah, sold them that. when it opened up. When, he, when, it, when it was came out that the owner was a bit racist, you yeah. bought stocks. No, 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 no. Was it? He, he made those comments shortly after I bought them, which uh, had nothing to do with me, but obviously made the prices plummet even further. I should have bought them then. Oh, okay. But you made a profit? Yeah, doubled my money. Yeah. Well, either way, he's got some money and he's made the purchase of a three-story house Number 3520 North Marshall Street in northern Philadelphia, where he regularly started visiting the Elwin Institute. So this building was a uh, sort of a specialised supported living residential property for individuals with varying intellectual and physical disabilities. 
Gary would use his background as a nurse or caregiver to make friends with the workers at the house. And as a result of this, he was soon able to have kind of access to the individuals that lived in that property and therefore befriend many of them. He had a particular fondness for the females that resided in the property and felt a warmth for them as perhaps for the first time in his life, these females did not bully or belittle him or run away from him. So yeah, this is a really interesting turn in the case. Gary's obviously now purchased his own house. He's not wanting to return anywhere near his family home. And he's regularly visiting this residential property for people with learning disabilities. So he would want people from the outside to think, oh, it's just a nice, you know, good Samaritan visiting people that, that like to socialize and, and um, you know, he, he's doing no harm here. But surely based on what we know about Gary so far, there's some kind of bizarre ulterior motive here. And yeah, using his background as, as someone working in care or as a nurse, he's obviously easily able to relate to the people that work there and gain their trust and now regularly visit the females in the property. And it's just, yeah, not very nice at all. So during this same time period, tragedy struck the Heidnik family. In 1970, when Gary was just 27, his mother Ellen, who unbeknownst to Gary, had been diagnosed with bone cancer and was also in a heavily deteriorated state of health due to many decades of alcoholism. She ended her life by drinking mercury chloride in a coffee. So this substance was typically used as wood preserver, as a disinfectant and for developing photos, but was obviously fatal when consumed by Ellen. Despite his fractured and distant relationship with both his parents, this news absolutely devastated Gary as well as his younger brother Terry. Terry in particular found it incredibly difficult to deal with the loss of his mother and would also attempt to end his own life on two occasions shortly after his mother's funeral. Terry was actually sent to the same psychiatric unit his brother had attended, completely unaware that it was for the very same reason. So yeah, um, Gary actually spread his mother's ashes in Niagara Falls. Which could also be a death wish, with dead happy. In December of 1968, Gary and Terry, who despite the occasional argument and childhood fight, had always remained close friends, and they got into a heated argument which resulted in Gary smashing Terry over the head with a large wooden object, which cut Terry's head wide open, requiring almost two dozen stitches. Alarmingly, according to Terry, when Gary later visited him in hospital, and Terry complained to his brother that he could have killed him, Gary apparently turned to him and said, If I wanted to kill you... I wouldn't have bashed your head. I would have placed your body in the bathtub and dissolved you with acid. Which is mm. a very peculiar thing to say to someone that you weren't trying to kill. Yeah, not like a very brotherly joke. No. Mm. So at this point, Gary has no purpose in life, no direction, no real family, no real friends. He has enjoyed a life of volatility and what he would consider shortcomings, and he absolutely cannot see a light at the end of the tunnel. He does what any rational person would do. He drank several cups of coffee drove for 40 hours from Philadelphia to Malibu, California, where he claimed to have knelt on the beach and had the voice of God speak to him. So he returns to Philadelphia, and following his instructions from God, he starts his own church. And it is here that we move to the timeline of the House of Horrors killer, Gary Heidnick. October 1971. Using his remaining savings, Gary funds a church known as the United Church of the Ministers of God. And by the end of 1971, the church only had a following of five members, but this would soon amass into a devoted following of more than 50 members. Although Gary initially only invested $1,500 of his own money into the church, over the years, through taking consistent monthly earnings as, quote, donations from each of his church's members, the church would go on to generate more than half a million dollars 
for Gary over the next decade and a half. The church had an estimated fortune of almost $600,000 by the time the year 1986 rolled around. Almost $3 million in today's climate, which, yeah, that is... He's gone from having absolutely nothing to, yeah, amassing a small fortune in quite a small period of time here. Having the world in the palm of his hands, Ben, I guess. He, yeah. Like a bowling ball, if you're just carrying it to it, because you don't, you don't roll it with the palm of your hand. But... Some people do. I've seen them spin yeah. it like that. It's a bit, bit wild, isn't it? But It's uh, crazy. But yeah, as well as making his travels to Malibu, Gary also alleged that after leaving the house to get a coffee one morning, God returned to speak to him once again. And this time, God told him kind of a similar story to that of the the Malibu Beach story. He said, you must create a church that catered for the needs of those with intellectual difficulties. And following this particular interaction, Gary renamed himself as a bishop. He then began conducting services each Sunday, now going by the name of Brother a bishop bishop muzawera good reference yeah i don't like that bro bishop um though quickly boys i mean some people enjoy a tangent some people hate it um but if you're gonna make a church i think you have to go something catchy memorable united church of the ministers of god hmm. i just think it's not very it's not sticking in my head it's a bit vanilla ucmg some people like vanilla i'm probably do god was here here yeah. G W E. And they go, where? And I go, everywhere. And they're like, that's not what you're trying to imply. And I'm like, well. <laughs> so after continuing to earn money from his army disability pension as well as social security, Gary began investing his personal money via the church's name. And once the church had amassed more than $50,000 from its followers, Gary made the decision to invest the money in Playboy which I, I did not see that coming. Uh, this was followed by several more investments, and as Charlie Gallagher, who was uh, later a prosecutor for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office uh, and very involved in this case, um, as Charlie put it, Although he lost a lot of money on investing in Crazy Eddie, eventually Gary changed $1,500 in investment money into three quarters of a million dollars. So yeah, Crazy Eddie uh, was a consumer electronics company. It wasn't a uh, NASCAR driver that I thought was, he was placing bets on. Uh, uh, it was no, it was sadly just a, an electronics shop that ceased operations in 1989. So it's from him being able to, with the exception of the Crazy Eddie money, um, he's turned $1,500 into three quarters of a million. Reminds me of in New Zealand, there's a thing called the, the Crazy Butcher. And he's like, I'm basically giving them away. <laughs> um, so I was thinking maybe it's something like maybe Crazy Eddie did actually give too many TVs away and that's why he's out of business that's true that's yeah that's true I mean yeah from, from this Gary's obviously it, unless he's not telling anyone about his bad investments obviously he told Charlie about Crazy Eddie um, it's clear that he probably has an eye for, for a good investment also saying I'm investing in the Playboy it just means he <laughs> just buying the magazine <laughs> I've got some investments going on so one of Gary's best and only friends of the time, John Cassidy, commented, I believe it was originally just a tax scam, but towards the end he was believing that stuff. I asked him, don't you think if there's a God, he'll be upset with what you're doing, taking money from religion? He said, no, God will be amused. God has a sense of humour. So yeah, I don't know. He's, he's kind of monetizing his church here a little bit. And he's obviously, we'll, we'll go into it a bit more. Tom's going to talk about the different members, but uh, he seemed to have quite a lot of vulnerable people join his congregation and uh, he was very willing to take their money. So yeah, I don't, this is where I kind of saw some similarities with uh, what's, what's your guy's name from uh, Waco? 
David Koresh. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, he's 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 Heidnicker's changing, uh, evolving as he's as he's growing older. And the thing is, I mean, they say about him monetizing religion. I mean, just look at the Vatican. I mean, lots of people monetize religion, and I, I know there's a lot of innocent people who just obviously just like to believe in God and pray and whatnot. But if you see any of those American uh, uh, pastors or uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Evangelists, preachers. Sorry, when you know they're getting even getting the little kids to learn preaching, and then they're passing the money around. It's like it's, it all seems very um, flying around in private jets and stuff. It's just like, mm, does God need you to fly in a private jet? But there you go. That's just that's just me. Um, Nineteen seventy-six. Five years pass by without any real incident. Gary continues to make money and continues to run sermons from his house and local city halls for his church members, encouraging those with intellectual disabilities and mental health conditions to join his church. He also invites drug addicts and alcoholics to join them from the streets. And during this time, Gary also gets himself his first girlfriend at the age of 33. Some of his church members are even allowed to live in his property, providing they pay him monthly rent. Some of these people were either previously homeless or drug addicts, and it is alleged that most of them were female, with Gary convincing them to enter the world of sex work in order to fund their rent. Which doesn't sound very, uh, hmm, very religious. No, no, he's not doing God's work there. Later that year, Gary got into an altercation with a tenant of his. This tenant was named Robert Rogers, which is a beautiful name, and his wife Linda had both recently begun renting a room from Gary. However, they began to find his behaviour to be peculiar. Robert and Linda alleged that Gary had become fascinated with race and was also regularly reading Aryan scripture to himself and other small groups within the church, trying to keep it hidden from members of his congregation that were not white. Like a lot of our cases um, with people, and I think it's people that tend to have the head injuries is usually the link Always, they always seem to be obsessed with the idea of a race war. It has come up a few times, hasn't it? Yeah, Charles, Charles Manson was obsessed with it. And obviously, he was heavily influenced by a lot, lots of drug taking and whatnot. But um, maybe it's something of that of that era. Um, but yeah, it seems to be a thing they really fixate on. The strange thing was, as well, with uh, with Gary, was he, a lot of his girlfriends all happened to be, or, the, or his partners all happened to be black women as well. So him being reading this kind of literature, and then it was very confusing and a peculiar way to behave. On top of this, Gary, at the time girlfriend Dorothy May Knight, was a young, intellectually disabled black woman who has been alleged was regularly beaten and starved by Gary. Linda and Robert stated that whilst they did try to help Dorothy, they were unsure of how to best do so safely. They began by trying to sneak food to her and offer her comfort when Gary was away from home. However, they were also aware that Gary was a violent and very volatile man. They claimed to have become aware of this after seeing the way he treated his girlfriend and some other followers. Gary saw red with Linda Rogers one day when the two got into a heated argument regarding the rent and living conditions. Linda followed Gary into his basement while shouting at him. As a result of Linda's complaint, it is alleged that Linda was complaining about heating and cleanliness of the house whilst Gary was demanding rent money from her. Uh, Gary turned off the electricity, which triggered Robert to try and enter the basement with the pair. When doing this, Robert noticed that the basement door had been locked whilst the argument got louder and louder. After some quick thinking, Robert was able to find a window to the basement that he was able to enter. Once he entered, he confronted Gary, who immediately pulled out a gun and fired a shot at him. Robert fell back to the floor, stunned, and was lucky enough to be left with only a graze in the face. Uh, so yeah, Gary's thoughts are basically, if he if he locks the door, he could basically imply that he thought that Robert was uh, going to be robbing the house, and he was just protecting his own property. But obviously he had done that in the, with the intention of knowing that Robert would do that, and he was waiting for him with a gun there. The police soon arrive, where Gary is arrested, taken downtown, and charged with aggravated assault, as well as carrying an unlicensed pistol. Yet for some reason, the charges were later dropped. Some have speculated that Robert and Linda did this after both Gary and more than a dozen of his church members threatened their lives. 
and as a result of this event, Dorothy May Knight, Gary's then girlfriend, is removed from the property and placed into the care system, which infuriated Gary. So 1978, in the two years that had passed, Gary began dating a young lady by the name of Anne Jeanette Davidson. And once again, it has been alleged that this partner had either a mental health condition or an intellectual disability. The pair are only together for a couple of weeks before Gary asks her to move in with him. Here, Anne Jeanette reveals to Gary that she has a sister by the name of Alberta, who is currently receiving treatment at a local psychiatric hospital. It has been reported that both Anjanette and her sister could not read or write. So yeah, there were a lot of questions. Obviously, we'll talk about it a bit more. Gary was regularly visiting the Elwyn Institute. Um, he's got um, a lot of work history in hospitals as well. But yeah, he seems to have found a fondness for individuals with disabilities at this point. And Anjanette, um, as well as moving her into his house after only a few weeks of dating, uh, Anjanette would actually fall pregnant with Gary's child during the early part of the year. So as a result of this, he put Anjanette on a very strict diet, which meant that she only put on five pounds during her pregnancy and just for some some wider context there uh, most pregnancies usually result in an extra somewhere between 22 and 28 pounds uh, and Anjanette has only put on five at this point and she was also not able to seek medical attention during any part of her pregnancy and that was up to the point that the baby was delivered the child would later be taken from the couple at birth due to Anjanette's disability so as we mentioned earlier, Gary had been a regular visitor at the Elwyn Institute where he would often meet and spend time with vulnerable young female adults. Gary eventually stopped attending Elwyn and instead started visiting Harrisburg State Hospital. And this was the particular hospital where Anjanette had said that her sister was, was based. It is not clear if Gary decided to stop attending Elwyn or if he was told that he was no longer welcome. When he attended Harrisburg State Hospital, Gary convinced workers that he was the brother-in-law of Alberta Davidson and was somehow able to sign Alberta out of the hospital on day leave. So yeah, it's very similar to when he started going to Elwyn. He obviously perhaps talked about his medical background, hospital background, charmed them, won them over. And um, yeah, he's immediately able to, with very little uh, kind of identification provided, he's immediately able to sign this vulnerable person out of the hospital. So Gary specifically took Alberta out on day release to then take her to his house where he locked her inside of his basement and a and a trigger warning it does get quite dark here so during the time that he has alberta captive he raped and sodomized her over the next several days occasionally he did this in front of her own sister she would later be found by another church member who thankfully returned her to the hospital and after almost two weeks under Gary's control, hospital tests conducted on Alberta revealed that she had contracted gonorrhea from her assault. At the same time, Gary resumes and maintains his relationship with Anjanette. Gary was once again arrested. He was then charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, infiltrating deviant sexual intercourse, and interfering with the custody of a committed person. However, during his trial, Alberta could not testify in court, and Gary pleaded not guilty. Although it was found that he was manipulative and psychosexually immature because Alberta could not testify due to her disability, proving Gary's crimes became difficult. However, he would still be found guilty and charged with interfering with the custody of a committed person, recklessly endangering others and false imprisonment. During this time, um, as we mentioned before, Gary sometimes would go through bouts of um, mutism, and this is at one point when uh, he went back into that state. His criminal defence attorney at the time, Chuck Peruto, said, He comes up for parole on that prior assault. These are the people with the power to grant your release, and they ask him a question at the parole board hearing, 
and they don't answer them. He writes on a piece of paper, the devil put a cookie in my throat. Are you going to release him back into society? He was later released in April 1983. Once he was released, he once again committed himself back to his church and he continued to fund money into the church to get huge amounts in investment back. As a ma- If he was able to retain his followers after being yeah. in prison for that, that is... Well, that's the thing. Because so many people that were followers of his were vulnerable, mm. either homeless, uh, had some sort of dependency, he, yeah, he was able to manipulate them very easily. But yeah, it's so bizarre. Yeah, because he was the bishop and like a lot of people in the, the corrogation, they're like having a go and then people are like, oh, don't bash the bishop. He's a great guy. If you've heard his sermons. Anyway, he bought cars and a new house in Philadelphia. He tried to impress the women around him, yet he could still not fulfill his true desire to have a house full of children. He also got a number of um, high-end uh, vehicles at this point, which he'd like to just drive around and, you know, show that he was successful and obviously trying to impress people that way. Um, he would go on to lose all parental rights to his daughter, uh, Maxine, who is the daughter he had with Anjanette. September 1985, Gary gets married for the first time and he marries a woman named Betty Disto with whom Gary had been talking to via letters for a period of two years prior to them getting married. She was a Filipino woman. Gary and Betty met through a matrimonial service and I believe he had access to this service due to the fact that he uh, claimed to have been a bishop or had his own church. Yet the marriage was short-lived. Betty found her husband sharing a bed with other women as soon as she arrived in the US. Which, that's not... At least go to the airport. Yeah, she walked in with him having three women in his bed. Wow. She told him how disrespected this made her feel and Gary retaliated by making her stand in the corner of the room and forcing her to watch him have sex with other women. She later fled and told police of the abuse she was enduring at the hands of her husband. Gary was to be charged with indecent assault, spousal rape and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. But Betty went into hiding and did not show for the court hearing, which meant once again Gary was cleared of all charges. So yeah, that's twice now he's avoided uh, further reprimand. Doris Zibolka, who was a neighbour of Gary's, summed up the situation between Gary and Betty when she commented the following. For a while there, him and his wife started fighting a lot. I talked to his wife outside sometimes. She was pregnant with little Gary and she told me, he's hitting me. I said, honey, you're pregnant. If you can't stop him from hitting you, leave. And she did. After the wife left, there was a lot of girls in and out all the time. They looked like hookers. One night we were sitting on the front porch and a girl comes flying out the door. She was thrown out. She was half naked. She's screaming and banging on the door. The cops came. He gave her back the clothes. Betty Disto would later ask for child support from Gary as she had given birth to Jesse John Disto. Not much is known about Jesse today. Gary's other son that he had with a previous girlfriend that was named Gary Jr. has also decided to stay out of the spotlight. So although we've kind of condensed Betty and Gary's relationship, despite the marriage being short-lived, they were able to conceive a child and and this is one that uh, Gary becomes very absent of. It's the 25th of November, 1986. Gary captures the woman who is most commonly known in this case as his first victim, Josefina Rivera, and in her own words, she would go on to say, On November 25th, 1986, I was hustling on the corner of 3rd and Girard at about 11pm. A 1987 caddy, a Coupe de Ville, pulled up. The driver of the car and I discussed the price. We came to an agreement of $20. He drove me to 3520 North Marshall Street, and we went into the house. He identified himself to me as Gary Heidnick. We went up to the second floor front bedroom and he gave me a $20 bill. We then took off our clothes and we had sex on his waterbed. We got off the bed and I was walking over to where my clothing was and he came up behind me and grabbed me by my neck. 
I wasn't able to breathe, and then I went unconscious. When I regained consciousness, he had me on the bed. He had a handcuff on my right wrist. He kept telling me to shut up or he was going to choke me. I told him, all right, I'll do anything you say, but don't hurt me. When we got into the basement, I saw this big hole in the floor and plastic bags full of dirt were stacked in the corner. He shackled my legs to a chain. He used clamps that he used to hold mufflers on around my ankles. He secured them with nuts. Then he put crazy glue on the nuts so I couldn't turn them. He told me that he was going to get me pregnant and I would have his children and he would raise them. He put me in a hole in the basement floor. He kept trying to put a board over the top of me, but it wouldn't fit because the hole wasn't deep enough. He finally forced the board down over me, and after I was in there a while, I had trouble breathing and I was screaming. He took the board off and pulled me out the hole by my hair, and then he picked up a stick and started to beat me with it. Then he put me back in the hole and left me there for a long time. It seemed like it was a full day or more. Then I heard his voice and a girl's voice coming down into the basement. I could hear him saying, Be quiet. Shut up, Sandy. You know that I'm not going to hurt you. The person Gary was talking to was Sandra Lindsay. Sandra was kidnapped on the 3rd of December 1986. Sandra and Gary had been friends for some time before he went on to kidnap her. He had earned her trust. Sandra had learning difficulties and had a desire to fit in. Sadly, Gary was able to manipulate this. Yeah, I want to say obviously they had been friends is a very loose term. Sandra thought they had a friendship, but Gary obviously had different intentions. It was the day after Thanksgiving. Sandra left her home to go and collect some medication. It was the last time she would leave the family home. She would not be seen alive by her family again. When Sandra did not return, her family became increasingly worried. They were able to contact a friend who gave them Gary's number. The friend attended church services with Lindsay. The family desperately called Gary searching for answers and their loved one. He hung up the phone on them. They then showed up on his doorstep. Again, he denied seeing her. Becoming conscious that the family were only becoming more anxious, Gary forced Sandra to write a Christmas card to her mother. Yet this only made the family more heightened. They continued talking to the police and demanded their return to Gary's house of horrors. So yes, um, obviously we mentioned numerous times here, obviously the uh, the church that Gary had started, he was a bishop, and I thought, interesting topic, uh, lots of things going on there, lots of different, it's strange that you can start your own religion really, but um, let's have a little deep dive here, boys. <laughs> Dan, could you hear it please, mate? Here we go. Click. Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. It's really weird when you did that. I just felt like there's probably somewhere in the world people are moshing out to it, and I thought that's yeah, pretty cool. Probably. Pretty cool, dude. Yeah, yeah. So this is a welcome back to TT's top five titillating takes. <laughs> um, it's your boy. <laughs> it's your boy T. Twenty twenty three. Anyway, so um, you know, I like to do. I like to do like a few little different things here and there. You know, me always ducking and diving. Um, here are some five bizarre religions. And I've got obviously little my little names for them as well. Of course I do. Um, I'm going to start off with one that you guys are probably already, already aware that is a religion. Um, I call them the, the hooded ones. Um, Jediism. Um, so that is a religious movement followed by thousands of Star Wars fans all over the world. There is a Jedi church and it is a religion that incorporates the fictional teachings of the Jedi. They believe that the Force is a very real power in the universe. I mean, in 2013, Jediism was actually the seventh largest religion in the UK, with an incredible 175,000 followers. Oh, which is a lot, isn't it? That is a lot. Also, with that one, I feel like if you're if you're saying it on your bit, you know, let's say you're at a party or a school reunion, you're part of um, Jediism, you're talking to one of the jocks, and you feel a bit embarrassed. If you say it quickly enough, Jediism, it sounds a little bit like Judaism. So you could probably kind of 
you know, lean out of that one and be like, yeah, yeah, journalism. Yeah, um, the next one I like to call uh, the posh ones. Uh, this one is very peculiar. Um, the Prince Philip movement. As if. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm being serious. Uh, one of the most bizarre religions in the world. The Prince Philip movement is a religious sect followed by tribal people in the Pacific Island County, Vanuatu. The cult is believed to date back from 1974, so quite a while ago, when Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth II visited the country. Since then, the villagers have been decorating their shrines with framed portraits of Prince Philip. Oh, there you go. Ooh. So there's there's two that are re- relatively harmless, I'd say. I mean, I wouldn't be too bothered if my neighbour was was a Jedi. Probably feel quite nice about it, to be fair. Next one, though, I call them the creepy ones. Um, Ag- Agori. Oh. So uh, the Agori is a feared Hindu cult. Uh, many Orthodox Hindus condemn the Agoris due to their twisted rituals. Dan, you're probably thinking, what are those twisted rituals? Uh, well, basically, they live in cemeteries and feast on human flesh. They also drink from human skulls um, and they chew the heads off live animals and meditate on top of c- cadavers in search of spiritual enlightenment. If your neighbour's that, you're probably not going to be too happy. What's that smell? Um, this one I call the hard cell. The name's going to give it away a bit. Church of Euthanasia. Um, so founded in Boston in 1992, the Church of Euthanasia is considered the, wor- the world's only anti-human religion. The church promotes solution of overpopulation and, and related ecological problems by a massive voluntary population reduction. And they have a famous slogan, save the planet, kill yourself. Um, so yeah, there's that one, which I thought as well, if, you probably can't be a you know, a head priest for there too long because you're not really following your own religion if you're not, you know, doing your bit. And the last one I call the the lads. Um, the Church of Maradona. The Church of Maradona is a religion based in Argentina that worships the iconic Argentine football player Diego Maradona. And the symbol of the church is D1OS, which uh, combines the Spanish word for gods, uh, Dios, and the shirt number of Maradona 10. It's basically, yeah, it's just some soccer mad people who thought we'll make a religion all based around Maradona. Um, which you could kind of say Napoli is, is similar because you see his uh, image everywhere. Um, but yes, that's, that's my five titillating uh, takes uh, on the uh, five bizarre religions I could find. Uh, as, as I said, like most of them are fairly, well, three of them are fairly harmless. One of them, you want to take a wide berth mm. and the other one, you just kind of go, guys, calm down. But yeah, that is my other TTs for this week. Hell, wow. And there you go. And back to the case. Tommy's trivia. <laughs> That's terrific. The 23rd of December, 1986, Gary would kidnap a third woman on this day. Lisa Thomas was aged 19 at the time of her capture. She was on her way to a friend's house when she was met by Gary. She had to tell him that she was not a sex worker. In her own words, He took me to City Line Avenue to TGI Fridays, and he had a martini, and I had a cheeseburger and french fries. Then he took me to Sears and Robux, and he told me to spend up to $50. Then he took me to his house on Marshall Street and gave me a beer. We was watching a movie, then we went upstairs, and then we had sex. Afterwards, he got up and strangled me. I could hardly breathe. And I told him that he could do whatever he wanted, and that's when he got the handcuffs and took me down to the basement. He had the chains and car clamps. He put them on my ankle, and he had to count the links, so, you know, the amount to open my legs wide to have sex. 2nd of January 1987. On this day, Deborah Dudley was captured and brought to Gary's basement. Debbie was 23 at the time of her capture, and according to Charlie Gallagher, the county prosecutor for the case, Debbie was someone who was, quote, wasn't going to be missed. I don't want to sound callous, but she had led a pretty tortured life. 
She had been on the streets for years. Debbie had a defiant nature and would not obey Gary's orders. On the 18th of January 1987, so two weeks later, on this day, Jacqueline Askins was kidnapped. And in her own words... He told me he would give me the money to go with him for half hour. When we got to his house, we was playing this video game called Mr. Doe. And, like a half hour or 45 minutes later, he grabbed me in a headlock with his arm around my neck, choking me. He took me to the basement and I met Josephina, Lisa, Debbie, Sandy. So yeah, by this point now, he has five women captive in his basement and it's in awful conditions um he's running a church from his house up above in the floors above there are numerous people living there that are vulnerable adults as well so it's it's really really unbelievable that he was able to manage to 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 do this and get away with it for as long as he did especially if you compare it well actually i mean if we compare it to the ariel castro one he had three women captive during that period of time and managed to keep them for a, a long long time but he wasn't running a church from the same from yeah. the same home so yeah this this yeah this gets absolutely horrific now because he will begin to play the women against one another um it was quite clear from the off that josephina would become gary's most favorable victim he made her the boss of the other women in the hopes that it would keep them all in line she would escape punishments and would be served hot chocolate and hot dogs and would even share a bed with Gary. Josephina would later admit, even despite the, the horrific nature of her circumstances, that she was starting to fall for Gary and she said the following. Any time that you're cut off from the world outside, whoever's holding you captive, you're going to grow to like him regardless because he's your only contact to things that are outside. He's your only source of survival. So the basement itself, uh, along with his captives, uh, Gary would actually refer to it as the hole. And the conditions within the hole, as well as the punishments within the hole, were unimaginable. Gary would starve, beat and rape the women for days upon days if they disobeyed his orders. He would even jam screwdrivers into the women's ears, causing them to bleed, in hopes that they would later become deaf. According to Josephina, Gary told her his plan was to have kids lots of them i got kids already but the state keeps taking them off me well i got away now of having kids so nobody can take them away you're just the start you're going to have my baby down here but not just you i want to get 10 girls down here so you can all have my kids so obviously with the joseph fritzel case we've covered before he conceived children with his own daughter down in the basement dungeon that he had constructed ariel castro got uh, a number of his captives pregnant but he would then um, physically assault them to the point that they would would miscarry but with gary heidnick he seems to be i, d I don't know it's, it's really bizarre he his motive here seems to be that he wants to have his own family his own kids and as many as possible that he can then bring into his church, bring into his life. And I've not really seen that kind of motivation before. Usually with Ariel Castro and, and Fritzl, it was power, sex and being in control. Whereas this guy, he's obviously got those things as an element of this case, but he seems to just want to have as many children in his family as possible. This is a bit of a rogue shout, but it reminds me of Michael Scott wanting to have loads of kids to be his friends. Huh. So they can never, what was it, have a hundred kids so they can never say no to me or something like that. Never. Which, yeah, that sounds sinister in this context, yeah. but yeah. I want to be married and have a hundred kids so I can have a hundred friends and no one can say no to being my friend. Uh, oh, okay. Well, uh, nice talking with you, Michael. Back to you, Miss Trudy. But yes, um, yeah, it's truly horrific. Um, as we mentioned before, he was very fixated on a race war as well and, uh, 
it's just very, it seems very confused in terms of uh, what he's going, going on to say, especially the conditions they had down there in terms of thinking that you could have anyone be health, be healthy down there and have a baby healthily. is just, it's absolutely disgusting. If you look at photo, if you search Gary Heidnick basement, it's fucking horrible. The 7th of February, 1987, Sandra Lindsay would die on this day after making the fatal decision to disobey Gary Heidnick. After not following his commands, Sandra was starved for days upon days whilst being locked up in chains, which hung from the ceiling. Yeah, so she basically had a handcuff with one hand, uh, one hand handcuffed to the ceiling. So you can imagine being for days just dangling there. Absolutely horrible. So um, he would he would basically begin to force feed her bread, essentially shoving it down her throat, just keeping um, her mouth closed in order for her to eat it. But she was refusing to eat. She collapsed to the ground after being freed from her shackles. She had drawn her last breath. Seeing their friend and fellow victim dead on the floor caused the women to panic. Gary simply shouted to them, cut out their bullshit or they would be next. In a later 1991 interview with the police, Gary would explain his ways of discipline as follows. How much verbal exchange did you have with the girls down there in the basement? At first I tried to make it nice, right? Yeah, how, how did you do that, Gary? Uh, I was holding parties here for one thing. I had a Christmas party and a New Year's party. Eight, they go down in the hole in the morning. Board goes over the top of the hole with the sandbags and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they stay down there till roughly about eight at night. Okay. Now, on this particular day... You got a radio down here, right? Oh, yeah. Play, play, yeah. What, yeah. Playing real loud? Yes. Why is that? To, to, to drown out any noise? Right. In case you're... Because you're yeah. leaving the house sometimes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so you don't I, I was... You know, I'm, I'm not yeah. holding nothing back. I yeah. realize no, that's no, incriminating. Not, uh, uh, that's uh, incriminating no, for me to say that uh, in a state of mind. I was conscious enough to know... That was a conscious act on my part, and that was essentially the reason. To drown out that noise, for sure. Well, they might like a little entertainment, too, you know. You were as electrocuted a as punishment. Yeah. And you did that systematically for some time. No. Only several days. Nothing was working. I was trying to find something that worked that would make them shut up to stop. So oh, you yeah. got a kind of infliction of pain on these women. I was trying to find something that would make them behave. But it was painful to them. I hope so. I, I don't mean I hope so, but I mean, you know, that's what I was trying to achieve, you know, to make them behave. Having a dead body in his hands, Gary decided to dispose of Sandra. He dismembered her body with a power saw. He placed her arms and legs, which he called dog food, into the freezer. He then cooked her ribs in the oven after boiling her head on the stove. When Debbie would not quieten down, Gary took her upstairs and showed her Sandy's head in the pot. As I said, if you ever see a big old casserole pot on the... On, Stove. It's just the amount of times we've heard that in any of the cases we covered. Just a big old pot there. Horrible. Yeah, that is that is absolutely grim. It is. Yeah, during that interview with the police, he he does mention about he's, he's not as confident as as you hear a lot of people are um, when they're doing these interviews or showing off or trying to be a, you know come across as confident. He literally goes, "I had to uh, cut up the bodies." Like it very awkwardly says it, which is I haven't really seen, I haven't really heard that from uh, another person. He does, yeah, for someone that started his own um, church, he doesn't have a great deal of charisma or confidence Definitely. compared yeah. to the others. So yeah, maybe I take back the old uh, uh, David Koresh comparisons. But yeah, he seems very, very bog standard. Yeah, bog standard Heidnik. Neighbours noticed a rotten stench come from Gary's house and complained to the police. They were sent to check the property. And when they arrived, Gary simply told them, I'm cooking a roast. I fell asleep and it burned. With that explanation, there was no need for further investigation and the police did not inquire anymore. Which, the rotten stench, you go, well, 
what, what kind of roast is it? It's human. Okay, we're going to have a look. I'm I'm really paranoid at the moment because there was quite a bit of chicken that I, I had a birthday barbecue the weekend just gone. There's quite a bit of chicken. Oh, left thanks over. for the invite. You're welcome. You're welcome. But me and Dan, we had a couple of brews, didn't we? No. Why are you lying? <laughs> no, I'm just lying about that part. Um, but yeah, no, I had a uh, birthday barbecue and there was lots of chicken that didn't get cooked. So I put it in like my black bin, which isn't going to be collected until Tuesday. It's already started to smell bad. And I'm very nervous that the smell of it is people are going to walk, walk past and think, oh, what is he up to in there? Or when the bin men come, they might even refuse to take it and be like, oh, call the police. Why didn't you just have cooked chicken the next day? Uh, because there was so much already cooked left over, made leftover fajitas of barbecue bits. Oh, it's nice to know those chickens died for a... <clears throat> so this one, this is a bit of the, the case that made me really shudder. Was He uh, essentially, it was said that he ground up the flesh um, from Lindsay and mixed it with dog food and fed it to the girls locked in the basement. Yeah. Which you can only imagine when the girls found that out... Um, Yes, yes. I mean, even the fact, even the idea of just feeding them dog food is absolutely, you know, despicable. But when you add that element to it, it's 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 heartbreaking. Yeah, if you if you do uh, get a chance to have a look on uh, some of the images of this case, there are a lot of photos taken of the basement, and then there are some reenactments that have also been made. And it is absolutely the seller of horrors. Uh, a lot of the headlines are, but yeah, it's um, yeah terrifying conditions, and for this to be thrown in on top. Yeah, this is one of the one of the one of the worst ones we've covered, I believe. Definitely up there. Tom and Dan were at my barbecue, by the way, guys. They were there. Just I, I need. What this. are you talking about? You were there. I've got photos. No. Yeah. Can do anything with AI. To be days. fair, you do look very photoshopped in. Because <laughs> I was. Sure, man. But they they were both there, guys. <laughs> 19th of March, 1987. Now, whilst Josephina may have escaped punishment from uh, from Gary, she may have unwittingly become an accomplice. One day, she was even coerced by Gary into flooding part of the basement or filling the hole with water. She then removed the electrical safety wiring from one of the wires on an extension lead and made all of the women step inside the puddle of water that had then formed. The women were then electrocuted via their chains repeatedly. So yeah, that's absolutely horrific. That's horrible. So yeah, before this happened, they actually were, um, Gary was using electric shocks to kind of uh, punish the women, but he was just doing it on the chains. And it was a kind of the amount where he was enjoying watching them dance and flail around, which is, which, which is absolutely um, despicable. But yeah, with this, he essentially got, there was a hole in the wood. So they were dipping the, the, um, the electrical cord down into the hole and it would make contact with either the girl or the, the girls or the chains, and then all of them would be shocked at the same time, essentially. But one of the times they did it, it literally just made contact with um, Deborah Dudley. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll go on to explain what would happen now. So yeah, this would continue to the extent that it actually caused the death of Deborah Dudley. The other women within the pit screamed and screamed when they saw the deceased body of their fellow victim, which again, so if you imagine you're one of those women and one of you has been killed and potentially cooked and served to them the other one has now also been electrocuted in front of them they're facing unimaginable torture every single day it's absolutely yeah absolutely horrific and then gary kind of comes and goes between the basement simply checking in and when deborah had actually passed away he checked her body in front of the other women and said yeah she's dead now i can go back to having a peaceful basement 
which is, yeah, absolutely horrific. Mm. Josephina was then made to write down on a piece of paper a statement about how Deborah had been murdered. Within this statement, she implicated herself. Gary then made her sign the paper, followed by him signing his own signature, and told her that if she ran and told the police about his torture, then he would tell them how he didn't do it alone. So he and Josephina would even dispose of Debbie's body together. So she, he would allow uh, Josephina out of the house together when they dispose the body in the Pine Barrens Park. So, yeah, he's very much manipulating Josephina to this point. He's showing her some favoritism, but also now completely uh, left her as an accomplice uh, and implicated her in the crime. So she's, yeah, she's in a, a horrific position as well as the other women at this point. On the 24th of May 1987, the girl's torture was about to end. The night before, Gary and Josephina were prowling the streets and Josephina came across a woman she knew called Agnes. Gary told Josephina that she'd be able to contact her family if he was able to capture Agnes. Gary would later go on to have sex with Agnes following his usual tactics. He then kidnaps her and takes her down to the basement. Now that Josephina has earned Gary's trust, when he asked her to pick up another girl the following day, she asked to do so by herself. He complied and waited at a petrol station while she supposedly was being more and more an accomplice to his plan. Unbeknownst to him, Josephina actually walked to her house where her boyfriend was and when he opened the door, she could not have been more relieved. So when Josephina started telling her boyfriend or everything that happened, he obviously just didn't believe her. He thought that she'd got, she had got actually gone crazy with all the things she was saying and, you know, about the pit, about electrocution, about chains, everything like that. But she was saying, screaming at him to, to you know, um, they need to call the police. He actually wanted to go to the house himself. She said, no, don't go to his house. Let's call the police. So then following this distress call, the police arrived and found Josephina, who told them the whole story um, and that Gary was waiting at the uh, petrol station. The police didn't actually believe her at, the, at, the, at this point, but then she went, and gone, she went on to show her actual scars on her legs from the chains, and that's when she, they believed her, and then they would go to the petrol station and find, um, find Gary there. So when the police actually found Gary at the, at the um, petrol station and they came out to him, he thought they were going to him because of unpaid child support. <laughs> he didn't have any That's other crazy. idea of why, um, which is, again, baffling considering. So, yeah, um, James Hansen, a former police lieutenant, would go on to say, When I got there, the house was sort of intimidating. It had metal doors on it, and all the windows had bars, and in the bars was a crucifix. I went right to the freezer in the kitchen. Josephina had said he had body parts in there, so I opened the freezer, and I went to enough autopsies to know there were body parts. Then I proceed down to the basement and the girls are sitting on a mattress. They were in shock, naked. They were chained to a soil pipe padlocked. We had to go to the firehouse and get bolt cutters. So that was the timeline of Gary Heidnick, the House of Horrors killer. Um, yeah, an absolutely gruesome case. And obviously he put his victims through unimaginable horrors within that basement. We're now going to move on to a bit of aftermath for the case. So during Gary's trial, he was not the clean-cut man that he was made to be. Some have said that his defence team specifically made him out to look like Charles Manson. So yeah, Gary would often have a big beard and quite long hair, but the uh, the defence team would really play on this. And this would have played into the image that Gary Heidnick was insane and therefore could not be detained for his lack of mental stability. Gary's trial revolved around proving that he was aware of his actions. His lawyers were doing everything in their power to make Gary seem incapable of murder with a sane mind. So Gary's legal team, his defence team, did everything in their power to make Gary seem incapable of murder uh, with a sane mind. And he's going to mention in a quote that we use now, he's going to mention an individual called Charlie, but that refers to Charlie Gallagher, who was of the prosecution. So on this, Chuck Peruto said... 
If you make your victims eat human flesh, that's sadistic. But if you eat it yourself, that's insane. I thought Charlie was going to blow a blood vessel during that time in the trial when I tried to get that in. But Charlie was correct. There was no evidence of cannibalism. I started all that. I would leak it. And by week's end, he's a cannibal. So Gary maintained his innocence throughout his trial. He claimed the women were in the house when he moved in, which is a very bizarre claim. Yeah. I don't know if he's just trying to allude to the, the insanity plea there. He goes, they just happened to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he denied the accusations put upon him. Gary was found guilty on the 1st of July, 1988, and was sentenced with the death penalty. At his execution hearing, he stated, You people think I committed murders that I have not committed, and I have refused to appeal my case. I still refuse, even though I can prove my innocence. I still refuse to appeal my case. I resent this kind of shit being done to a disabled veteran. Gary's daughter Maxine did try to appeal her father's death sentence, but after two years of legal proceedings, her appeal was declined. Yeah, it's so horrible to think that, you know, that is her father, this monster, and she's trying to do right by him, even though he doesn't deserve anything of the, anything of the sort. Um, I had a story about uh, an inmate who was actually housed, imprisoned beside uh, Gary when he was in, when he was in prison, and um, he would say how no one would want anything to do with him. But apparently Gary would regularly basically do voices um, of his victims. He would do his voice talking and then he would do the voices of the girls shouting, oh, don't come downstairs. He would do a female voice impersonating the girls and his voice just playing out the scenes of what he did. Wow. And everyone around him were getting so angry and like pissed off and wanted to get at him. But he would just do it to kind of wind everyone up around him. And weirdly, the prison guards apparently didn't do anything of it. They were, they were quite happy with the other prisoners being like angry about it. So it's very odd. But yeah, he, he wasn't uh, one to shy away from what he did apparently when he was inside. He wasn't denying what he'd done. So Gary died on the 6th of January 1999 and he was given a lethal injection. Before his death, Gary's death row meal had been noted as two slices of cheese pizza and black coffee. Hmm. Bit shit. It is shit, isn't it? Yeah, that's that. bland. Um, when it was finally announced that Gary had succumbed to the lethal injection, it had been reported that one witness said, Thank you, Jesus. There was also applause. Jacqueline Askins and the families of both Sandra Lindsay and Deborah Dudley watched the execution. And the person stated that the biggest justice was he was sitting there after spouting all this race war stuff, after being like overtly racist as well. He was sitting there. And then before he got the lethal injection, he, he could see that his, his beautiful biracial daughter sitting there and he couldn't even have any relation with her before he was then killed. Saying that's the sweetest justice that he like left this earth kind of spreading hate. But, you know, she was there kind of thing. So it's quite a powerful image. Um, so Tracy Lomax, Sandra Lindsay's sister, was conflicted seeing her sister's killer die. She would go on to say, I really wanted him to stay in jail. I wanted him to do time because I wanted him not be able to run away from the woman that he'd killed. Because I know that they spooked him. I know that they came back to haunt him. His death was so much easier than his victims' deaths. Thomas and Adam also wish Rivera to be convicted for the deaths of Sandra, Lindsay and Deborah Dudley. Askins said, Rivera, she killed Debbie and we all could have gotten out of there alive. There's a lot of stuff she did she didn't have to do. I just thought she took on her serial killer ideal too. She was the oldest. She was supposed to protect us. Even though she was in a bad situation... She was still supposed to protect us. Yeah, I think that's the the tricky thing. Josephina ultimately was trying to keep herself alive, but she's obviously followed the orders of Gary 
and obviously enacted a lot of punishment and a lot of trauma on these these women. Although the survivors may have wished for Josefina Rivera to have been put behind bars just like Gary, because she was just as responsible in their opinion, Rivera was not actually charged. She was found to be a victim of Gary and she did play a part in the girl's eventual release. Rivera commented that it would have been better for Gary to sit in a 4x4 cell than to have been given an execution. Gary Heidnick is famously one of the criminals that inspired James Gum, uh, also known as Buffalo Bill, when we talked about this at the start of the episode, uh, the serial killer from the 1988 novel and subsequent film, uh, The Silence of the Lambs. The novel by Thomas Harris was then made into a cult classic film in 1991, and the film was hugely successful and grossed $272.7 million worldwide, yeah. despite being on a budget of $19 million. The film went on to win five Academy Awards and Tracy Lomax, the sister of Sandra Lindsay, said that she did not watch the film uh, because she said nobody wants to watch a movie about their loved one being held against their will. And yeah, the uh, the old Buffalo Bill scenes are very, uh, there's a lot of memes with them. It's yeah, it's, it's a very, very uncomfortable watch that particular segment. Uh, horrific yeah absolutely horrific i mean it's it's very much it's inspired by but the pit in the ground i think it's literally the only yeah i think isn't it like a dozen different serial killers that have kind of inspired buffalo yeah Hill? like it's a big blend yeah i don't think it, you can say it's like oh that's carbon copy of hell that kind of that obviously the 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 intention buffalo bill had with with the victim in signs of the lambs obviously is very different to what we're yeah. talking about so yeah it's, it, i think from what i can see anyway the only things comparisons i can draw is is the hole in the ground yeah, absolutely. Uh, to this day, people still debate whether Gary was sane or not. And obviously, there are lots of different elements we talked about in his childhood. The head injury, uh, the uh, wetting the bed, the bullying from uh bullying from students bullying from family members physical abuse so obviously in the in his childhood there, that debate will rage on but we did cover obviously the fact that he was persistent bedwetting past the age of five there was animal torture serious impact to the brain or a head injury physically abused or even sexually abused as an infant given up and abandoned periodically by both parents severely bullied at at school he's then obviously been unable to hold down a job unable to hold down relationships and he's kind of latched on to a series of vulnerable uh, partners so yeah it's, it's it's a difficult one and they did try to portray him his legal team certainly tried to port portray him as someone who was not uh, not sane but he seemed to be quite adamant that he didn't show too much remorse for the absolute horrors that he put these people through there are those like charlie gallagher who was in the, the prosecution who said in response to gary's time in the army he just stopped obeying orders he finally got them to give him a medical discharge Eventually, he wound up with 100% disability because he was able to convince the doctors that he was crazy. He's been faking all his life. Then there are the others who question whether Gary was genetically programmed to kill. Shannon Heidnick, who is uh, Gary's niece, uh, Gary's brother Terry's daughter, commented, The whole family was screwed up and weird. My mum told me how their dad beat Gary real bad with a toy wooden aeroplane because he peed his pants. His dad was an alcoholic and his mum took poison. They found her in her basement. She was tired of the abuse. They were really sick parents, and they gave their kids some serious problems. Today, Rivera has been able to be reunited with her three children, or three had been placed in the adoption system. She has married and now lives in Atlantic City, although she does still suffer from panic attacks. She has managed to create a new life for herself. She has since worked various jobs and gave up sex work and drugs a year after the trial finished. Jacqueline Askins still cannot enter a basement, understandably. She's on medication for anxiety. 
She has her two adult sons to help her through her trauma. She now works as a cleaner and still lives in Philadelphia. Lisa Thomas and Agnes Adams still allegedly struggle with substance abuse and mental health issues. So yeah, to recap, Gary uh, kidnapped six people uh, as a minimum, uh, four of which survived and two were murdered, or one starved to death and one electrocuted. But this is the ones that we're aware of, obviously at that time, and in a number of other cases we've covered, there have been you know, sort of question marks around the total victim numbers, but certainly the amount of trauma he inflicted on survivors and their families and uh, the whole community as a whole is significant. It's, yeah, it's an absolutely bleak case, isn't it? Yep, yep, definitely is. In 2018, the band Skinned released a song called Gary Heidnick, which, as the name might suggest, was based on the life and crimes of Gary Heidnick. Get out of here. Yeah, it did indeed. And it featured Jonathan Davis, the singer from Corn. It's got, I mean, it's got some interesting lyrics that reference dog food, references body parts. One arm in the freezer, one leg in the blender, one head in the stove, return to Senden. The basement is so peaceful, you are naked, I smoke. Now here is one more cracker, devil's cookies in your throat. Cook hair, jar bones, shut up, shut up, I don't want to hurt you, I don't want to hurt you. But there you go, that was the case. But there you go, that was the Uh, case of... But there you go, that was the case of Gary Hart. Motherfucker, one more. (laughs) So there you have it. That was the case of Gary Heidnick, the House of Horrors killer. Yeah, absolutely despicable character uh, for sure. That's for certain. Um, I'd say he's an evil bastard, if you ask me. Yeah, evil, evil bastard. Yeah, absolutely horrific case. Obviously, uh, yeah, obviously a dark one. Yes, indeed. Um, Now it's time for... Dan, to get, can you remind us of the riddle, Dan? Uh, but of course, Tom. Thank you so much. What has to be broken before you can use it? See, I've got two answers here, and I think both of them are right. Fantastic. The more the merrier, Ben. I've got one. Glow sticks. That is cool, actually. I was going to say a flare. I thought it might be more on brand with Dan and be eggs. It's an egg. Ooh. Oh. But I really like the glow sticks answer. Because you have to snap them, don't you? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The flare. Snap activated. Well, flare, you kind of like just light it, don't you? With the... don't like... You don't break okay, a flare. Well, well, some of them what, twist. Okay, what about a, a heat pack you use in camping? Yeah, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. Ice packs. Would you say you break yeah, it, the, though? The little disc, oh, yeah, yeah that'd be right. Yeah. Oh, what about a grenade? You don't break it, though. You just pull the pin out. Yeah. yeah, but that is because that not breaking the design. No. Sorry. <laughs> First answer so, then was wicked. Yeah. But it, what was the actual answer? An, an egg. egg. Oh. An egg. I mean, you, I suppose you can use an egg unbroken. Yeah, because you could boil it first. You could but boil it with the shell on. You still have to break it, don't you? Yeah. That's yeah that's if you're throwing it at someone's house, though, I know. Mm. Still, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's so. it. And it's on brand because Dan is the egg king of, yeah, our, of our yeah, cult which yeah. we still don't know the origin story of it's got the yoki touch oh yeah and he touched it too much <laughs> dan's riddle sly and mischievous grim twist and turn a mind game to win puzzles are plenty a chuckle or two a laugh and thought we find our clue Riddles. um and also dan it's the time again where dcifs uh, uh tts um it's the uh yeah, the the decision man uh so ben yours was iq based right IQ based. Well, you can kind of say that they were both kind of my things this week. Uh, Tom was about religion and odd religions. Yeah, it was, baby. Yeah. Um, Euthanasia. Yeah, that really interests me, actually, that one. So, 
just because of that point, I think Tom's going to get it this week. I've actually lost count, to be honest. I think you're neck and neck, aren't you? I think that point, you know, might have taken him ahead. Taken one ahead. Which is annoying because I gave him that idea. Did you? Should yeah, use it got, yourself, mate. Yeah, but I'd already sort of put pen to paper. Yeah, but if it's better. <laughs> I know it's not their job, but maybe someone can let us know in the comments. Yeah. There are no comments anymore, so let us know. Send us a DM if you're uh, keeping tabs. Yeah. That'd be much appreciated. But yes, thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back again next week with a brand new case. Um, a cheeky little clue. Uh, ben, have you got any little cheeky little riddles that you did like last time? Hide half the crisps? Yeah, I, I liked hide half the bag of your favourite crisps. I like that one. It did work. Uh, okay, for next week's case, a little clue. Uh, so uh, a little clue for next week's episode. You're asking your partner, who you're very affectionate for, for the directions. Or I'd say, you've got a French map. <laughs> or, you, or you've got a French map, yeah. But yes, we'll be back again next week with a brand new case. And if you just haven't had enough and you want more, then why not go over to icmap.co.uk and um, we've got over 126, I want to say, Minnesota's over there. Lots of cases. You can listen to it on, on audio or you can watch them visually. Um, and also uh, you get cheeky little discounts over on the merch store. And um, yeah, have a little perks and uh, perks and prizes. And do also feel free to tag us in your social media posts. Uh, we will be doing the audience case vote very, very soon. So if you're not already, give us a follow over at, at Pod. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Freds. We're, we're all over your face. But get, Instagram is probably where the, uh, the case vote will happen. So give us a follow. Pop us in your story. Tell your friends and family about us. Um, because people are still just at this point. We just had our third birthday. But people are still discovering us. And that's, that's cool. Because uh, then they get to just ride the wave and, and consume and have a big old binge, uh, which is which is fun. We got tagged in a post today saying someone just found us, and that made me smile. Yeah, it's very nice actually, wasn't it? Yeah. Please keep spreading the word, and if you do have a moment, why not uh, give us a little follow on Spotify and give us a um, a little cheeky rating and also on iTunes a little a little uh, review on there. It helps more than you'll ever know. But we'll be back again next week with a brand new case. And until then, like we always say, we say this all the time. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> well, unless it's... Well. Who's Ben gonna offend this week? You never know who he's gonna offend. Yeah, is he like, a foe or is he a friend? You know that Ben is gonna offend. Don't binge drink your way to bed. Oh, alcoholics. Shit. Have a couple before bed. That's a serious one though, isn't it? Cause, yeah, probably would. Yeah, probably have uh, voice binge drink. Yeah, okay. Um... If you're going to climb trees, don't tread on weak branches because they could break beneath you. That's sensible. Uh, don't hit your head. Don't hit your head. listening to this who innocently fell out of a tree, but um, oh, no. fingers crossed. Anyway, till next time, till Pip. See, See you ya. later. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.